Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 280. I'm your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Sun is out and the flowers are starting to bloom over here on the northeast coast of England. So, fingers crossed, weather is approaching reasonably nice. We've had a few cool snaps of late, but um, hopefully it's going to be all back to normal. <laughs> Full steam ahead. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Fact Article. It is Film Talk by Dennis Lane. Main Fiction is by Stephen Popkes. Story entitled Jackie's Boy. This will be part one. Part two will be next week. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, before we get into that main show, let's just talk about funding for the Starship so far. Yes, I'm going to, over the next few weeks, really, kind of, really, really, really harp on about funding for the Starship so far. Trying to get some kind of coppers into the, the kitty to keep the old girl going. It's been... Over again, everyone's affected as well over the kind of Christmas and holidays and everything like that. Funding's dropped off a little bit on Starships over, and it's kind of running a little bit kind of close to the edge. Well, it's under the edge, so it's over the edge. So, if and I mean, what if, if if please, it'd be lovely if you can, but what I'm after is kind of monthly contributions just to make sure everything's kind of running fine. It's lovely to get kind of one off donations, but to kind of keep the bedrock of the old girl going. We really need kind of month in, do you know what I mean, donations. And it can be anything from the 250 right up to the £20 a month. You know, that would so help just to kind of, God, just stop the worrying, do you know what I mean? And kind of, and stop us dipping into the kind of house funds, which is just driving the, the good wife mad at the minute, Mrs. Starship, so far they're going crackers. So for the next few weeks, you will hear me, and unfortunately that's the kind of nature of the beast I will be harping on about kind of donating to the sofa and everything like that. It just, you know what I mean? I, I try my best to kind of get it out every week. And we've been doing this, like, say, since 2006. And it's always been free. But I've kind of, it, it's got to kind of have some sort of funding underneath it. And we've been very lucky. But it's just, like you say, it, it's just life, isn't it? It's just sometimes your ups and downs. So if you want to kind of, you know, contribute to Starship Sofa, you haven't done before, you know, and you, you've been listening for a while, you know, it's about time. Dig in deep there and, you know, sign up, come over to the front of the news or the front of the website. That would be fantastic. If you are on, you know, a kind of monthly donation and you might just consider sneaking it up a level. Do you know what I mean? If you're on 250, you know, think about going up to five pound. That would be just awesome, to be quite honest. It's just, uh, it would make my idea. Do you know, it's, everyone's going to make that kind of cut. And, you know, 250 there's not much left, actually, when PayPal gets its claws out of us, you know what I mean? So 
if you would be kind enough to, that would be fantastic. We, like I say, we need them at the moment, so it would be a shame. It would be a crying shame, to be quite honest about it, if this had to kind of go under just for funding, anyway. So let's forget about that. Let's get into the main, the main show. First up is a fact article by Dennis Lane. Dennis, how are you doing, sir? A review from the Jacaranda City. Hello again from an autumnal Pretoria. Recently, I went through to Joburg to visit the mother-in-law. She's decided not to spend any money on pool chemicals. As a result, it's covered with a scum of black algae, and who knows what's going on beneath the surface. Naturally, that led me to break out my DVD copy of 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon when I got home. In summary, the movie begins with the discovery of some unusual skeletal remains, and so a group of scientists, led by Dr. David Reed, head up the Amazon to see if other remains can be found. At first, they strike out, but they're told that further up the river is the Black Lagoon, and because it's a lagoon, fossils may have ended up there. I'm not quite sure how that works out. They are amazed, however, when they discover a living prehistoric creature, a half-man, half-amphibious reptile, that clearly objects to the presence of humans in its domain. The expedition uses poison in an attempt to force the creature to the surface, but they only succeed in killing loads of fish. The creature takes a liking to Kay Lawrence when she goes for a swim, and later on it kidnaps her. But the scientists rescue her and take the fight to it but it proves to be more intelligent than they expect and blocks the exit from the lagoon. There's a major difference of opinion between the money man, Dr. Williams, who doesn't want to give up on capturing the creature because of the fame it will bring, and the rest, led by Dr. Reed, who say they have enough evidence to go back and equip a proper expedition. Even though four people are dead, Williams insists that they stay. Eventually, after more deaths, The creature is shot and slinks off, perhaps to die. And, abruptly, the movie ends. Creature from the Black Lagoon was directed by Jack Arnold. I've talked about him before in my reviews of It Came From Outer Space and The Incredible Shrinking Man. And the screenplay was by Harry Essex and Arthur Ross. The lead character, Dr David Reed, is played by that quintessential scientist hero, Richard Carlson who also starred in It Came From Outer Space and Riders to the Stars. Those of you of a certain age may also remember him from the Bell System Science series of 16mm educational films that were a staple of US science classes in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Carlson appeared in three of the four films directed by Frank Capra. Kay Lawrence is played by Julie Adams, who appeared in numerous TV series over the years. Name an iconic TV show from the 50s, 60s and 70s, and she will have appeared in it. Just in 1960, she appeared in Cheyenne, Maverick, The Rifleman and Wrangler, plus many other non-Western TV series. I make it 87 TV shows that she's appeared in, plus TV movies and her regular movies, so a very in-demand actress. The last on-screen appearance that I know of was in CSI New York in 2010. 
Dr. Edwin Thompson, is played by Whit Bissell, who appeared in scores of TV shows and over 200 movies. I remember him mainly as Lieutenant General Hayward Kirk in the 66-67 TV series The Time Tunnel, which was regular tea-time TV viewing for me in the 1970s. The movie was unusual in that three composers worked on it, each given responsibility for evoking certain feelings. Henry Mancini wrote the light romantic themes, Herman Stein wrote the title music, the dramatic music, and the music for the extended underwater scenes, and Hans J. Salter wrote the more horror-tinged music for the climax of the movie. It was filmed in 3D and required a specially designed lightweight underwater 3D rig. Interestingly, it used a polarised system, like modern systems, rather than the more traditional red-blue rig of the time. The creature was designed by Millicent Patrick, actress, commercial artist, fashion designer and illustrator of children's books, not a person to sit around twiddling her thumbs. The design was based on fantastical creatures from 17th century woodcuts, notably the sea monk and sea bishop, now thought to have been some sort of squid. My first memory of the creature is from the You'll Die Laughing bubblegum carts I bought in the early 70s, with stills from monster movies with humorous, supposedly, captions. For examples of the side-splitting humour, Google You'll Die Laughing 041, 052 and 058. In your searches, you have to make sure that Yul, Y-O-U-L-L, is spelt without the apostrophe. Just go and have a look. Two different stuntmen were used to portray the creature in different environments. Ben Chapman played the creature out of the water in a darker, heavier suit, while Riku Browning played the creature when it was in the water and wore a more flexible suit. Browning was a professional diver and swimmer, which was essential as the costume was constructed without an air tank, and so he had to hold his breath for up to four minutes at a time. The director reasoned that air would have to travel through the monster's gills, and so there should be no air bubbles from the mouth or nose. Browning demonstrated his proficiency in the suit in the beautiful shot where Kay swims in the lagoon with the creature swimming on its back beneath her, mirroring her movements. A scene which apparently inspired the iconic swimmer scene at the start of Jaws. While it's a short movie, just 79 minutes, it is atmospheric and generates plenty of sympathy for the creature that seems to just want to be left alone apart from its fascination with Kay. There are also some not-so-subtle points made about environmentalism. For example, in one scene a cigarette is thrown into the water. The creature is below the boat looking up at it. The next scene opens with the dead fish. Generally, I would say that this is one of the better creature features, and I'd recommend that you give it a go. A sequel was made a year later, Revenge of the Creature, where the creature is captured and taken to an aquarium in South Florida. In my opinion, you can safely give that one a miss. Unless, as a movie buff, you want to watch out for Clint Eastwood's first appearance on screen. Well, that's my review. Time for me to go out and clean the pool. I can't risk having it end up like my mother-in-law's. Who knows what's down there? Bye.
There you go. Dennis, thank you so much. I always like, I get a prod Dennis every now and again. Dennis, you're a star. Thank you very much. There's a new book coming out by Dennis as well. I'm trying to get a promo off Dennis, so I'll play that as well. So great news there. Next up is the main fiction, and it's part one of Stephen Popka's Jackie's Boy. Like I say, we'll play part two next week. I'll give you a bio on Stephen. Stephen is a science fiction writer and software engineer living in Boston. He began writing seriously in 1972 and attended the Clarion Workshop in 78. He has published two novels and approximately 30 short stories. He's also had the opportunity to work for on NASA's Ares project. The launch vehicle that was intended for now discontinued Constellation program. The story that you're about to hear came out in Asimov's Science Fiction in the April-May 2010 edition. Then it was picked up in the year's best SF-16 by Catherine Kramer. Then it came out in the year's best science fiction 28 annual collection by Gardner Does Was. It also appeared in the mammoth book of Best New SF-24 Again, published by Gardner Does Wars. Then, the year's best science fiction 20th annual collection, which came out in 2012 by Gardner Does Wars from St. Martin's Press. Popular story, a very good story. Like I say, it's a, it's a big girl, it's a novella, so we're going to run it over two weeks. The story is narrated by Jeff Lewis. When not reading or collecting books, Jeff works for a huge semiconductor manufacturer in the area of mathematical modelling and simulation. Wow, go on, Jeff. Before being lured into the corporate world, he worked for the National Optical Astronomy Observatories and the Kitt Peak Observatory, spending years messing up his (laughs) circadian rhythms. Jeff's free time is spent reading, writing, collecting and consuming wine, travelling and bothering the four cats that share his house. His tolerant and understanding wife works as a lawyer and spends a great deal of time pulling him into the debates that he has no chance in winning. I know that one, Jeff. So, the Starship Sober is very proud to present Jackie's Boy, Part 1, by Stephen Popkers. Michael fell in love with her the moment he saw her. The Longbottom boys had taken over the gate to the St. Louis Zoo from Nature Phil's gang. Leonard Bob had killed in single combat and eaten Nature Phil. That pretty much constituted possession. The keepers didn't mind as long as it stayed off the grounds. So the boys waited outside to harvest anyone who came out or went in. They just had to wait. Somebody was always drawn to the sight of all that meat on the hoof nothing protecting it from consumption save a hundred feet of empty air and invisible, lethal, automated weaponry. People went in just to look at it and drool. Michael knew their plans. He had been watching them fervently for a week, hiding in places no adult could go, leaving no traces they could see. The boys had caught a woman a few days ago and a man last night. They were still passing the woman around. What was left of the man was turning on a spit over on Grand. He sniffed the air, a rank odor mixed with a smell like maple syrup. Corpse fungus at the fruiting body stage. Somewhere nearby there was a collection of mushrooms that yesterday had been the body of a human being. Michael wondered if it was someone who had spoiled before the boys had gotten to them, or if it was the last inedible remnants of the man on the spit. By morning, there would be little more than a thin mound of soil to show there had been meat there. This dark spring morning, just when the gates unlocked, 
One of the guards remained asleep. Michael held his backpack tightly to his chest so he made no sound. The man started in his sleep. For a moment, Michael thought he would have to take up one of the fallen bricks and kill the guard before he woke up. But the guard just turned over, and Michael slipped fervently past him. He was just as happy. The only thing that got the boys more riled than meat was revenge. He stayed out of sight even past the gate. If the boys knew he was here, they'd be ready at closing time, when the keepers pushed everyone outside. Michael had never been in the zoo, but he was hoping a kid could find places to hide that an adult wouldn't fit. Inside the zoo was safe. Outside the zoo wasn't. It was as simple as that. Now, he was crouching in bushes outside her paddock in the visitor's viewing area, hiding from any keepers, looking for a place to hide. She came outside, her great, rounded ears and heavy circular feet, her wise eyes and long trunk. As she came down to the water, Michael held his breath and made himself as small as an eleven-year-old boy could be. Maybe she wouldn't see him. Except for the elephant, Michael saw no one. The barn and paddock of one of the last of the animals was the worst place to hide. He'd be found immediately. Everyone had probably tried this. Even so, when the elephant wandered out of sight down the hill, Michael sprang over the fence and silently ran to the barn, his backpack bouncing and throwing him off balance, expecting bullets to turn him into mush. Inside, quickly, he looked around and saw above the concrete floor a loft filled with bales of hay. He climbed up the ladder and burrowed down. The hay poked through his shirt and pants and tickled his feet through the hole in his shoe. Carefully through the backpack, he felt for his notebook. It was safe. I see you, came a woman's voice from below. Michael froze. He held tight to his pack. Something slapped the hay bale beside him and pulled it down. The ceiling light shone down on him. It was the elephant. You're not going to hide up there, she said. Michael leaned over the edge. Did you talk? Get out of my stall. She whipped her trunk up and grabbed him by the leg, dragging him off the edge. Hold it, Jackie, a voice from the wall. Jackie held him over the ground. You're slipping, Ralph. I should have found his corpse outside hanging on the fence. She brought the boy up to her eyes, and Michael knew she was thinking of smashing him to jelly on the concrete there and then. Don't, he whispered. We all make mistakes. The wall again. Should I toss him out or squish him? This is your job, not mine. Let him down. Perhaps he'll be of use. The moment stretched out. Michael stared at her, so scared he couldn't breathe. So excited the elephant was right there, up close and in front of him. He couldn't look away. Slowly, reluctantly, she let him down. Whatever. A seven-foot metal construction project, a zookeeper, came into the room from outside. Three metal arms were mounted cameras, each with their own gun barrel, followed both Jackie and Michael. Follow me. This time the voice came from the robot. Michael stared at Jackie for a moment. She snorted contemptuously and turned to go back outside. Michael slowly followed the keeper, watching Jackie leave. Elephants talk? That one does, said the keeper. Wow, he breathed. Open your backpack, the keeper ordered. Michael stared at the camera-slash-gun barrel. He guessed it was too late to run, 
He opened the backpack and emptied it on the floor. The keeper separated the contents. A loaf of bread, two cans of tuna, a notebook, several pens. The lens on the camera staring at him whirled and elongated toward him. Yours? You read and write? Yes. Take back your things. You may call me Ralph, as she does, said the keeper as it led him into an office. Why aren't I dead? I try not to slaughter children if I can help it. I have some limited leeway in interpreting my authority. The voice paused for a moment. In the absence of a director, I am in charge of the zoo. Michael nodded. He stared around the room. He was still in shock at seeing a real live elephant. The talking seemed kind of extra. The keeper remained outside the office and the voice resumed speaking from the ceiling. Please sit down. Michael sat down. How come you still have lights? The only places still lit up are the zoo and the cathedral. I'm still able to negotiate with Union Electric. Not many places can guarantee fire safety. Michael had no clue what the voice was talking about. It's warm, he said tentatively. With light comes heat. Now, what is your name? Michael. Michael Ripley. How old are you? Michael looked around the room. Eleven, I think. You're not sure? Michael shook his head. I'm pretty sure I was six when my parents died. Uncle Ned took me in. I stayed with him for five years. The Long Bottom Boys killed him a few months ago. You have no surviving relatives? Michael shrugged and didn't answer. Where do you live? Michael's attention snapped to the keeper as he looked around the ceiling warily. I just hang out around the park. You have no place to stay? No. Would you like to stay here? Michael looked around the room again. It was warm. There was clearly plenty to eat. None of the gangs were ever allowed inside. But where did they get the food for the animals? How come people weren't allowed in at night? Maybe he was on the menu here, too. I guess, he said slowly. Good. You're hired. What? You will call me Ralph, as I told you before. I will call you Michael, except under specific circumstances when I will address you as Assistant Director. Do you understand? Michael stared at the ceiling. What am I supposed to do? Dear Mom, I found a job. It is helping take care of an elephant. Her name is Jackie. She's not very much fun, but I like her anyway. Maybe she'll like me better when she gets to know me. She's an elephant. I don't think I ever saw an elephant before. Just in the books you read to me. I work in the zoo. I bet you never thought I'd ever work in a zoo. Most of the animals are gone. But there is the elephant and a rhino. No snakes. It is a lot better than sleeping in the dumpsters. And a dumpster does not stop a rifle much. I miss you and Dad. But I don't miss Uncle Ned all that much. I miss the apartment, though. Love, Mike. He was mucking out her stall when Jackie entered. She stopped and looked down at him. What are you doing? Michael straightened up. He tried to smile at her. Working? Ralph hired me. To do that? Michael looked around. I don't know. This seems like a needed doing. 
Jackie didn't speak for a moment. Let the keepers do that. Come with me. He followed her to the door of the stall. We'll start with the first office on the left. You go in there and look for papers, books, notes, memos, anything with writing on it. You know what writing is? I know what writing is. Good. Michael looked up at her. How did you learn to talk? That's not your business. Do your job. It wasn't a small job. It seemed that the world of zoos ran on paper. Just pulling the folders out of the first office took three days. Michael's duties didn't end with bringing the papers out. The type was small enough, he often had to hold it in front of first one of Jackie's eyes, then the other. It wasn't easy on Jackie, either. She had to stop irregularly because of headaches. When he could, he tried to read them for himself to see what Jackie was trying to find. She smacked him with her trunk if she caught him, so he took extra time in the offices. A cold rain descended on the zoo. Ralph closed the doors and turned up the heat. Jackie was irritable at the best of times. Being inside only made her worse. A month after Michael had come to the zoo, when a late spring snow was sticking wetly to the ground outside, Jackie stared out the window, resting her eyes from reading. Michael was sitting in front of the heater duct, eyes closed, luxuriating in the hot wind blowing over him. Jackie had been pushing him all morning, but now she was fixing her gaze outside to ease her headache. So, kid, what's your story? Michael was instantly alert. What do you mean? Ralph told me you didn't have anybody outside. I know that much. Jackie turned her great head to look at him, and then stared outside again. Where are your folks? Mom and Dad. Uncle and Aunt. Mom and Dad died, like everyone else. Michael shrugged. There wasn't much to say about it. Uncle Ned let me stay with him over near the cathedral until he got caught by the Long Bottom Boys. I got away. I've been scrounging until now. Top out there, isn't it? I guess. It wasn't so bad with Ned. I took care of him. He took care of me. Jackie looked at him. What does that mean? As long as I kept him happy, he gave me a place to live and fed me and protected me from anybody else. Michael considered Jackie thoughtfully. I'm not sure what it takes to make an elephant happy. Just do your job, she snapped at him. That'll be enough. She didn't speak for a moment. Do you know how to get to the river from here? Sure. But I wouldn't try it. Boys have everything sewn up around the park. I sure found that out. He patted the duct and closed his eyes. You have a nice here. Ralph keeps everybody out. You have food and heat. I sure wouldn't leave. I bet, Jackie said dryly. Okay. Let's look at the lab books again. There weren't many of them. Most of the exhibits were sealed and empty. The reptile house and ape refuge were long abandoned. The bears were gone, but some of the birds were still in the aviary, and Michael stood for an hour in front of a single, lonely rhinoceros. The rhino room became his favorite refuge. The rhino wasn't short with him. The rhino didn't ask him strange questions or snort with contempt when he tried to answer. The rhino didn't call him an idiot. The rhino didn't speak. Michael, Ralph's voice came from the ceiling. Yes, Ralph. 
Jackie and I are finished for the moment. You can come back. Yeah. Michael didn't speak for a moment. I do everything she asks. I know. I don't talk back. I clean up after her. And elephants make a lot of shit. Why does she treat me like it? You're human. She has no love of humans. She needs you. That makes it worse. What did humans do to her? She's the last of her herd. Humans brought her ancestors from India. Human scientists raised her and the others in these concrete stalls and gave her the power of speech. Then they let the rest of her herd die. How come? The scientists didn't have much choice. They were already dead. A plague like what killed my folks? Somewhat. From what you told me, your parents died from one of the neo-influenzas. The scientist died from contagious botulism. Where did all the plagues come from? How many are there? Six hundred and seventy-two was the last count I received. But that was a few years ago when the data feed was getting unreliable toward the end. They came from different places. Some were natural. Some weren't. Several were homegrown by people with an agenda. Religious martyrdom. Political revenge. Economic policy disagreements. Broken romances. Some started out natural and were then modified for similar reasons. Michael mulled over what he understood. He didn't have Ralph to himself very often. Likely this chance wouldn't last long. If she doesn't like people as much, why are we spending so much time going through all the lab books? Why doesn't she just leave? That is not for me to say. Dear Mom, I thought elephants were nice. Jackie doesn't like anybody, not even Ralph. He's nice to me, but Jackie says he has to be that way. He's a machine like the keepers. Jackie said Ralph couldn't do what I'm doing. It had to be a human being. But I still like her even if she doesn't like me. I like to watch her when she's eating. It's neat to watch her trunk, like a snake that's also a hand. There are two knobs on the end of her trunk she uses like fingers. Only they're much stronger than fingers. She pinched me yesterday and today it's still sore. I moved my bed to the loft. That way, it's over the heater and the hot air comes right up under me. It's like sleeping in warm water. I miss you and Dad. If you can see me up there in heaven, try to make Jackie not get mad all the time. Love, Mike. Where did you find this? Jackie pinned him against the wall. She held up a green lab book in her trunk. Michael tried to push her away, but it was like trying to move a mountain. I'm not sure. Where? Michael stopped struggling. If you don't like what I'm doing, then do it yourself. That's your job. Then back off. A moment passed. Jackie eased backwards. She handed him the lab book. Here's the date range, she said, pointing to the numbers on the pages with her trunk. See? Month slash day slash year. Here's the volume number. This is volume six. I need volume seven for the same date. What's it going to tell you? Jackie raised her trunk and for a moment it looked like she was going to strike him. Michael stared at her. Slowly, she lowered her trunk. 
I'm not sure yet. Say thank you. Jackie went completely still. What did you say? I said, say thank you. Michael's fists were clenched. Jackie seemed to relax. She made a sound like a chuckle. Get the lab books and I'll thank you. Fair enough, he said shortly. Back in the offices, he stood in the hall and let his breath out slowly. His hands were shaking. Good for you, Michael, Ralph said from overhead. Yeah, now I've got to find the lab book she wants. In the corner of each room is a camera, said Ralph. If you hold the papers up, I can help. An hour later, he walked back into Jackie's stall and solemnly held out the lab book to her. Thank you, Jackie said in a neutral tone. Hold it up to my eye. Okay, Michael nodded. Reading the lab book didn't take long. That's enough, Jackie said. What do you want me to do with it? I don't care. I'm going outside. Jackie turned and left the stall. Michael was surprised. It was cold out there and snow still remained on the ground from the night before. He opened the lab book and went over the pages. There were words and several figures and dates. It didn't mean anything to him. What's going on, Ralph? Michael shivered and looked up at the gray sky. Spring was sure a long time coming. Ralph had told him it was April. I'm not sure, Ralph said. Maybe she found what she was looking for. Michael woke in the middle of the night. Sleepily, he looked over the edge of the loft. A keeper was helping Jackie put something over her back. I don't think I can do it, Ralph said. Quiet, you'll wake him. Maybe you could toss it over my neck and tie the ropes underneath. Michael sat on the edge of the loft and watched for them for a moment. You're leaving, he said after a moment. You're supposed to be asleep, Jackie tossed her trunk irritably. Michael didn't say anything. He climbed down to the apron and walked over to them. The keeper was trying to pull some kind of harness over her neck and back. Give me a knee up, Michael said. I can help. No human will ever be on my back, snarled Jackie. Suit yourself, Michael said. But the only way you're going to be able to tie that harness is if you can center it on your back first, and Ralph can't do that. I can if I can get on your back. The keeper extended his arm. Here, said Ralph. Michael stood on the camera, and the keeper extended it up until Michael could jump to Jackie's neck. He grabbed the base of her ear and pulled himself up. That stings, she said. Sorry. In a few moments, he had the harness in place. Then he dropped to the floor and pulled it tight. Good job, Michael, said Ralph. Jackie shook herself and shifted her shoulders and back. It's tight. I'm ready. Michael looked first at the keeper, then at Jackie. Are you closing the zoo? Not immediately, said Ralph. The food trucks have been coming in sporadically. I still have contracts with the farm and the warehouse. I've spoken with power and water. They say they are well defended. But if somebody digs up a cable or blows up the pipes... Ralph paused for a moment. My worst scenario is a year. My best scenario is five years. Michael felt suddenly lost. He looked up at Jackie. Take me with you. What? Jackie snorted. No way.
Come on, Michael pleaded. Look, to everybody out there, all you are is steak on a stroll. I can get you out of the city. Tell me where you want to go. I. She's going south, Ralph said smoothly. She needs to follow the river south to the I-255 bridge and then south to Tennessee. Where's I-255? Oakville. Michael thought for a moment. That's not going to work. It'll be dicey enough to get past the long bottom boys around the park. But the rank bastards live that way and they have an old armory. Even the boys are scared of them. What do you suggest? asked Ralph. Don't ask him. Jackie stamped her feet. I can make it on my own. Michael stood next to her. He looked at the ground. I'm a kid. I don't have a gun. I'm not even very big. It can't hurt you. Jackie looked away. Michael nodded. Well, once you're out of the park, you can't go south. That's the green belt. Sharpshooters. They don't ask questions. You just fall down dead about two miles away. You can't go north through the farm country. They don't have sharpshooters, but they've burned everything into the ground for six miles around them, so you can't hide. That means west or east. Gangs in both directions, just like the Longbottom boys, or worse. I'd take the old highway right into town to the bridge to take it across. There's no boss around the bridge. There's nothing anybody wants. The road is high off the ground, so you can't be seen. If you're quiet and quick, you can get through before anybody knows. Then I'd stay on the highway all the way down. People stick to the farms to protect them. The highways don't have anything. There are no gangs below Cahokia, nor many people either. Prairie Plague's got them. South of Cahokia, I don't know anything. How do you know all this? Jackie snarled. Michael stared at her. If you don't know where things are, somebody's going to have you for lunch. Uncle Ned taught me that, and I'm still alive, aren't I? Jackie tossed her head and didn't reply. Jackie? asked Ralph. The idea has merit. Jackie didn't speak for a long time. She stared out the door of the stall. Then she turned her head back to him. Okay, she asked reluctantly. When do we leave? Michael turned to the keeper. Jackie slapped the back of his head. Right now. Get aboard. Michael rubbed his head. That hurt, he said as he climbed up on her back. She rumbled out of the light. Good luck, called Ralph after them. Wait, Michael turned and called back. What's going to happen to the rhino? He didn't hear the reply. They didn't say anything as Jackie walked slowly behind the reptile house. Her ears were spread out and listening. The gate swung open at the brush of her trunk. Michael was impressed. A secret entrance. Check it out. Michael slipped to the ground and peered through the bushes. No boys. He signaled and she followed him, pushing aside the branches. She knelt down and he climbed back up. They listened. Nothing. She started walking up the hill. Jackie was quieter than he imagined. She walked with only a soft, deep padding sound. She stopped at the edge of the road. Where to? she asked in a low rumble. Michael leaned next to her ear and whispered as quietly as he could, Don't talk. I'll tell you where to go. Go to the right down the road. Then, when you can go over the bridge, walk down to your left. That's where the highway is. 
Jackie nodded abruptly, and he could tell she wasn't pleased that he should tell her to be quiet, but she didn't say anything. He figured he'd get an earful if they made it down below the river. Michael looked around and listened. It was the middle of the night. He couldn't smell a fire. Sometimes the boys built a fire with the contents of one of the old houses. They drank whatever hooch they could find, raiding other gangs if necessary, and fired guns into the air and shouted at the moon until dawn. That would have been ideal. If Michael and Jackie were seen by the party, they would be seen by drunks. No fire meant one of two things. Either there was no one around here, or they were out hunting. A bunch of hungry, desperate, sober, long-bottom boys was about the worst news Michael could think of. There was no hint of sweetness in the air, no mushroom-festooned corpses indicating the site of a battle. That was good. The long-bottom boys were big on ceremonial mourning, and they killed anyone they found. There weren't many left in St. Louis but not so few that the boys couldn't find someone to kill and then ritually stand over while the mushrooms returned the corpse to the earth. Michael sweated every foot of the walk to the highway, but the night remained silent. The highway was level with the ground, but after a mile or two it rose to a grand promenade looking down on the ruins of the city. Michael whispered to Jackie that now was the time to run, quietly, if she could. Jackie didn't reply. Instead, she lengthened her stride until he had to grab onto her ears to stay on her back. He looked down and saw the riotous dark of her legs moving on the pavement. There was a shot behind them in the direction of the park. Jackie stopped and turned around. They saw a flash and a dull boom. Then gradually, like a sunrise, the glow of an increasing fire. Oh, thought Michael hollowly as he stared at the tips of the flame showing over the trees. That's what's going to happen to the rhino. Come on, he urged. People are going to wake up. We need to get near the river before they start looking away from the park. The road curved around the south of downtown and then north to reach the river bridges. They could not see the river below as they crossed, but they heard the hiss and rush of the water, the low grunt of the bridge as it eased itself against the flow, the cracks and booms as floating debris struck the pilings. Then they were over it and traveling south. The flat farmland on their left, the river bluffs on their right, the road determinately south toward Cahokia. Dear Mom, we reached Cahokia a little before daylight. We could tell we got there by the sign on the highway. I wasn't tired at all, but Jackie was. Must be hard work walking all that way. Here's something interesting. Elephants can't run. Jackie told me. They can walk really fast, but they're too big to run. Jackie still doesn't like me much. She doesn't talk to me unless it's help figuring out where we are. Mostly, she can figure it out, but she needs my hands. I figure one of these days she'll leave me while I'm asleep. So I save things when I can. She says we're going to Tennessee. Howell, Tennessee. There used to be elephants there. She says she thinks they might still be there. If she doesn't find them there, she's going to try to get to Florida. It's warm all the time down there. There's lots of food to eat and it's never winter. That sounds pretty good to me. I would like to stay with her. She's big and pretty and real strong. She doesn't talk to me very nice. 
I don't think she would protect me if like Ned did. I'll write again tomorrow. Love, Mike. Michael was surprised that he saw no people in Cahokia. The farmlands he had been thinking of were bounded by weeds, but other than that, looked as if cultivated by invisible hands. They saw no one. The only sounds were the spring birds, the river, and the wind. Every few steps they could see a little mound of soil. The mushrooms had all dried up and blown away, but the mound still marked where someone had died. That first day, when they made camp in a hidden clearing, Michael discovered that Ralph had planned for him to accompany Jackie all along. There was a tent, sleeping bag, and all manner of tools, a tiny shovel, a knife, a small bow and arrow, and the smallest, most precious fishing set Michael had ever seen. In a flap cunningly designed to be hidden, he found a pistol that fit his hand perfectly. Next to it, separated into stock, barrel, and laser sight, was a high-powered rifle. A second flap had ammunition for both, exploding in impact bullets and clearly marked containers. Michael stared at them. He suddenly realized he could take down an elephant with this weapon. Ralph must have known that. The implied trust shook him. What did you find? Michael realized she hadn't seen the guns. The pistol was no threat. He pulled it out and showed it to her. Do you know how to use it? Yes. He replaced the pistol. Next to the weapons were Jackie's vitamin supplements, along with finely labeled medicines and administration devices that only a human being could use. Jackie snorted when she saw it all laid out. Michael looked at everything, sorted and arrayed in front of him, for a long time. He wondered how long they'd be able to keep such treasures as this. He realized he might need the rifle. Occasionally, between long stretches of young woods and tall, fresh meadows, they saw a few manicured fields that were laid out so ruler-straight that the two of them stopped and stared. These, Jackie told him, must be tilled by machines. No human or animal could ever pay so much obsessive attention to details. But no machines could be seen, and even the meticulous rows of corn or soybeans were afraid at the edges into weeds and brambles. Even so, as tempting as a field of new corn was to Jackie, she was unwilling to chance it. Machines were chancy things, she said, with triggers and idiosyncrasies. Even negotiating with Ralph had been difficult when it went against his programming. Better to wait until they found an overgrown field down the road. Jackie had no trouble finding food. It had been a wet spring, and now that the sun had come out, the older, uncultivated fields sprouted volunteer squash and greens. They fell into a routine. In the evening, they agreed on a likely spot, and Michael took the harness off her and set up camp. Michael was afraid she might step on him while she slept, so Jackie slept off a little way from Michael's tent. At first light, Jackie went off to find her day's sustenance. Michael made himself breakfast out of the stores Ralph had left him. He tried his hand at fishing in the tributary rivers of the Mississippi and gradually learned enough to catch enough for a good meal. He tried to eat as much as he could in the morning. It was likely they wouldn't stop until nightfall. After he had eaten and before Jackie returned, he waited, wondering if she would come back. She always did. She eased herself down the bank and drank, knee-deep in the river. Jackie was always impatient to get started and stamped her feet as Michael repacked the harness. Then she made a knee for him and he climbed aboard. 
Always they went south. Always, as quickly as Jackie could. Hohenwald first, since that's where the elephant sanctuary had been. But continuing south after that if she didn't find them. South, she told him, was warm in the winter. South had food all year round. Michael was amenable. He felt pretty safe. He was well fed. He learned the trick of riding Jackie and enjoyed watching the river on the right slip smoothly ahead of them and the land on the left buckle and roll up to bluffs and hills. Spring turned warm and gentle. Michael felt happier than he could remember up until they reached the spot where the Ohio poured into the Mississippi and the bridge was gone. They stood on the ramp of Interstate 57 looking down at the wreckage. The near side of where the bridge had been was completely dry. Stained pilings that had been clearly underwater at one point rested comfortably in a grassy field. On the far side, the remains of the bridge had broken off a high bluff as if the whole southern bank of the river had slid downhill. The river narrowed here to speed up and pour into the slower-moving Mississippi. Huge waves burst into the air as the rivers fought one another. They were over a mile away from the battle, but even from here they could hear the roar. The earthquake, maybe, muttered Jackie. Earthquake? About eight years ago, the new Madrid Fault caused a big quake down here. Ralph told me about it. The scientists had expected it to hit St. Louis as well, but the effects were to the east, so we were spared. Jackie shook her great head and swayed from one side to the other. How are we going to get across now? Michael looked at the old atlas. There's a dam upstream near Grand Chain Landing. Look at the bridge, Jackie trumpeted and pointed with her trunk. It's just a sample. Look at the river. The dam is probably gone, too. Michael looked upstream. We'll find something. We just can't go south for a little while. Jackie just snorted. After a moment, she turned slowly toward the east. Dear Mom, so far we still haven't been able to cross the Ohio River. I think it was even bigger than the Mississippi. Even at night, we can hear it rushing by. Every now and then, something floats by. Today, I saw six trees, a trailer, and an old house float by. Jackie says it's because of the flood upstream. I can tell something is bothering Jackie. She hasn't been as mean lately. It's not just that we aren't moving south, it's something more. Love, Mike. As Jackie predicted, the dam was gone. Perhaps the Ohio, powered by the spring rains, had ripped apart the turbines and concrete. The ground trembled as the water poured over the remaining rubble. Now what? Jackie said in a soft rumble. Can you swim across? Michael asked doubtfully. Can't elephants swim? Look at the water, she said shrilly. No one can swim through that. Then not here. How about where the water doesn't run so fast? Jackie didn't answer. Michael stared at the map closely. There used to be a ferry in Metropolis. Maybe we can get a boat. A ferry? Jackie turned her head and looked at him out of the corner of her eye. I weigh in at six tons. Michael nodded. A big ferry, then. Couldn't hurt to look. It's just a few miles up the road. A ferry, muttered Jackie. A ferry. 
The center of Metropolis clustered around a bend in Highway 45. Jackie and Michael followed the signs down to the docks. The shadow of the broken Interstate 24 bridge fell across the road, and in the darkness they could see the disconnected ends of the lesser Highway 45 bridge. A great half-sunken coal barge rested against the dock on the right side. The surface of the water was punctured by the rusting remains of antennas poking up through drowned powerboats to the left. Between them nestled the ferry and Canante, incongruously upright and unmangled. A man sat on the deck, whittling. He looked up as they came down the hill. "'Don't believe I've ever seen an elephant down this way before,' he said as he stood up. "'What can I do for you?' He was a tall, thin man. Michael couldn't tell exactly how old he was. His hair was turning gray, but his face seemed smooth and unwrinkled. Thirty, thought Michael. Doesn't people's hair turn gray when they are thirty? The man was dressed in a red and black plaid jacket against the cool river air. Michael spoke up before Jackie could respond. He hoped she would remain silent. He was pretty sure talking elephants would be suspicious. We need to get across. Do you now? He tapped out his pipe against the side of the ferry and refilled it carefully. My name is Jerry. Jerry Myers. You are? Michael Ripley. This is Jackie. Jerry nodded. All right, then. He looked at the elephant. I've never put an elephant on my boat, but it can't weigh much more than four or five of those little cars, so I'll probably be okay. He won't jump or move about. Jackie's a girl. Michael looked at the water ripping along. Jerry followed his gaze. Yeah. She, then. She won't move around. Be a damn shame if she turned over the boat and killed us all. She won't. Good. Well, then. Since you're the only human being I've seen in months, Jerry said dryly, and since I buried everyone else, I'm inclined to think about your proposal. Jerry looked at him closely. You're not sick, are you? Michael shrugged. I feel pretty good. Doesn't mean much, does it? Michael shook his head. Jerry stared over the river and sighed. Yeah. The last good citizen metropolis that had lunch with me said he hadn't felt so good in months. I went looking for him when he didn't show up for dinner. He was dead sitting in his kitchen with a smile on his face. Only thing I could say is apparently he died so suddenly he forgot to feel bad about it. Jerry lit his pipe and puffed on it for a moment. Speaking of lunch, I'm a bit hungry. Care to eat with me? Michael hesitated. Jerry pointed at the bluff up the hill from there. On the other side of that is an old soybean field. Lots of good, leafy growth for Jackie. Maybe you can turn her loose and eat with me. I don't know. Jerry didn't look like somebody would kill him and roast Jackie. Uncle Head didn't know who to trust. Until that day, he didn't. Michael corrected himself. How could you tell? Michael had a sneaking suspicion he would pay for the ride one way or another. Well, the field's there. Suit yourself. I'll be eating lunch in a half hour or so in that warehouse-looking building over there. Come on by if you want. Michael nodded. Jackie turned and started up the hill. The field was as advertised, and there was no visible people around to take advantage of them. I'll eat here. You watch.
said Jackie. I'd just as soon go on and have lunch with the old man, Michael said as he unharnessed her. We still have to cross the river. Seems like we ought to know something about the other side. I don't trust him. You don't trust anybody. Michael rummaged through the packs until he found the pistol. I've got this. You be careful then, Jackie said. I'll be coming down there if you try to run off. Yeah, I like you too. Michael hefted the pistol. It was heavier than it looked. He made sure it was loaded and checked the action. Jackie watched him. Where did you learn to handle a gun? Uncle Ned taught me, Michael said shortly. I kept guard while he forged. Then, Jackie stopped for a moment. If you had the gun, why didn't you leave him? It took both of us to stay alive. Michael released the chamber and made sure the safety was on. He put the gun in his pocket. He was a lot bigger than I was. He protected me. I helped him. Staying with him made a lot of sense. But he... Jackie shook her head. When the boys found us, he sent me off and took them on by himself. Jackie was silent for a moment. So you wanted to leave with me because I'm a lot bigger than you are? I can protect you? Staying with me makes a lot of sense? Michael stared at her. Are you kidding? I'm traveling with six tons of fresh meat. What part of that makes sense to you? Then why did you come with me? Michael stood up and didn't answer. He trotted down the hill toward the landing. Jackie stared after him. Jerry was cooking in an apartment above the warehouse. The room had a nautical feel to it. Every piece of furniture had been carefully placed. The curtains over the window were red and white check. The tables in austere gray with metal legs with a top made of some kind of plastic. The countertops looked similar. Two plates had been set out, the fork on the left, knife and spoon on the right, napkin folded just so on the plate. Plastic water glasses were set at precisely the same angle for each place setting. Michael stood in the doorway, not sure what to do. Coming into the room felt like breaking something. Come on in, said Jerry. He was stirring a pot. The contents bubbled and smelled deliciously meaty. Channel catfish bouillabaisse. He ladled out two full bowls and handed one to Michael. Been simmering since this morning. Have a seat. They sat across the table, and in a few minutes Michael forgot Jerry was even there. He only remembered where he was when the bowl was half empty. Michael looked up. Jerry was watching him with a smile on his face. Good to see someone enjoy my cooking. Want some bread? Baked it yesterday. Michael broke off a piece. Next to the bread was a small plate with butter. For a long minute, Michael stared, unable to recognize it. Then he remembered and spread the bread across it. Whoa, there. Here's the knife. Michael shrugged, pulled out his small hunting knife, and smeared the butter across the bread. Jerry raised his eyebrows and chuckled. Fair enough. But next time, use the little knife next to the butter. Michael sopped up the rest of the soup with the bread and leaned back in his chair, stuffed and happy. Jerry picked up the bowls and put them in the sink. Come on down to the porch. 
Michael followed him outside and down the stairs to a part of the dock that jutted over the water. Under an awning, he sat down in a lawn chair while Jerry pulled a box out of the river and opened it. He pulled out two bottles. He gave Michael the root beer and kept the regular beer for himself. Michael sat back in the chair and savored the sharp, creamy flavor. Jerry said nothing and the two of them watched the river roll by. So, said Jerry at last, what's waiting on the other side of the river? Hohenwald, Tennessee, Michael said and sipped his root beer. He could get used to this. Then maybe Florida. What's in Hohenwald? An elephant sanctuary. Elephants don't like to be alone. Jerry nodded. I thought Florida was underwater. A lot of it is, but Jackie says the upper part of Florida is still there. Michael stopped. I see, said Jerry. He was silent a moment. You're an awful nice boy to be crazy. Michael didn't say anything. If Jerry wanted to think he was crazy, that was all right with him. You don't think you'll find anybody down there, do you, asked Jerry. Michael shrugged. How would I know? Jerry nodded. Everything's pretty much fallen apart. I think there might be five people left alive here in Metropolis. You'd think he'd hang together. It didn't seem to work out that way. There might be a few hundred out in the countryside. Seems like I spent the last five years burying everyone I've ever known. I can't believe it much better down south. Michael finished his root beer and put it on the deck. That's where Jackie has to go. She has has something she can eat in the winter. Michael looked up at the remains of the bridge. He'd only really known St. Louis. It looked like things were messed up everywhere. For the first time, he had an inkling what that meant. What was it like before, muttered Michael. Michael had been talking to himself, but even so, Jerry reacted. His face seemed to take on a rubbery texture. Everything just came apart. First, the weather went shit. Then came plagues, one after another. And not just people. Birds, cattle, sheep, wheat, beans. There's about six years where you couldn't find a tomato unless you grew it yourself. Even then, it wasn't much better than 50-50. Oaks, saguayas, shrimp. Government would figure out how to make tomatoes grow again, and every maple in the country would fall over and rot. They'd get a handle on that, and the next thing you know, somebody had engineered a virus that lived in milk. Why would anyone ever do that? He shook his head. Yeah, figured that one out after a couple million kids. Right after that, the corn began to wither. We got a strain of corn that would grow, and a tidal wave comes roaring over the East Coast. Boston... Providence and New York go underwater. He stopped and sat up. He pulled out his bandana and wiped his eyes. If I believed in God, I'd go out and kill a calf on a rock or something. We sure as hell pissed him off. Jerry sighed. Ah, mustn't grumble. He sipped his beer, composed again. Michael stared at him. Maybe Jerry did this all the time. So, began Michael after a long, awkward silence. We should cross here? That's true. I'm pretty much the only game in town. 
but that's not my point. He pointed over the river at the opposite shore. That's Kentucky, or what's left of it. Things have been falling apart for a long, long time. I was sitting on my boat twenty years ago when the big rush came down the river and took out the two bridges. I could see it coming, a fifteen-foot wall of trash and debris rolling down on top of us. I had just enough time to pull in Canante into the creek downstream behind the oak bluff when it washed over Metropolis and scoured everything between us and Cairo. Back then we still had people living here, so we were able to clean up and rebuild over a couple years. Jerry chuckled. My little ferry business picked up because nobody was going to rebuild the bridges. He was still in a crisis at that point. It hadn't become a disaster yet. Not enough people had died. So where did the water come from? Jerry shook his head. Never figured that out. Was it just the Smithland Dam that let go? Or did one big flood start way up the river and then take out all the dams one by one on the way down? I do know that flood is what took out the two dams downstream from here, and when I did go up to look at Smithland, there wasn't much left of it. I came back. Then, about six years later... I loaded up a boat and with all the fuel I could find and went up nearly 500 miles to see what the hell was going on. It's not like you could trust anything you heard on the radio. I only knew what happened here. I didn't turn around until I reached Cincinnati. There wasn't a bridge or a dam left standing the whole way. This was before the earthquake. Maybe somebody blew them up. It was a big mystery until other things sort of overshadowed it. But you let me wander away from my point again. Hey, it wasn't my fault. My point is that now, the only thing that keeps what's on the Kentucky shore from coming over onto this shore is that river. Michael shook his head. So? What's over there that's not over here? Gary shrugged. Things? Big lizards, sometimes. Maybe a crocodile or two. Big animals. I haven't seen any elephants, but I might have seen a tiger. Yeah, right, Michael snorted. Pull the other one. A mountain lion, maybe. Jerry shrugged again. When we put dams and bridges across the water, cars and buses were the only things that crossed. Now the dams and bridges are gone, and what lives on that side stays on the other side. It's not going to be as easy to get over here as it was before. We crossed the bridge in St. Louis. It was just fine. Gary pulled his pipe out of his pocket along with his pocket knife and began cleaning the bowl. Maybe things can't cross up that far north. Maybe the Mississippi keeps things from crossing west, just like the Ohio keeps things from crossing north. Maybe I'm just having old man hallucinations. But I know what I saw. There are things that live on that side of the river that I don't see on this side. You cross the river, and they're sure as hell going to see you. Michael didn't look at him. That's where she has to go. She can't get food up here in the winter. What did you do in St. Louis? The zoo kept us alive, but it's gone now. Jerry sighed. She's a pretty animal. I guess there's no animal on earth so noble and beautiful and just plain big as an elephant. But it doesn't belong here. Jackie should be in India. 
I can't take her to India. I know that. Jerry hesitated. Maybe it's time to cut her loose. Michael stared at the decking. He didn't know what to say. Jerry pointed across the river. Tell you what. You and I take her across the river and let her off the boat. Maybe she'll work her way south. You come back here with me. Michael looked at him, trying to see if there was some hint of Uncle Ned in his face, but he couldn't tell. Michael was in no particular hurry to repeat that arrangement. I don't know. Jerry finished tamping the tobacco in the bowl and lit his pipe. You know that soybean field I sent you up to on the hill? It's a pretty field, isn't it? The soybeans are one of those perennial varieties popular about 15 years ago. When I was a kid, that was a toxic waste site with lots of mercury and cadmium and toxic solvents. Don't look at me that way. That was years ago. It's safe for her now. Anyway, you know how they reclaimed it? No. It was pretty neat, actually. They took some engineered corn. Corn pushes its roots deep into the soil, as much as ten feet in some varieties. This corn pulled up the metals and concentrated them into the kernels of the ear. It discolored the kernels. Some were silver, some were bright blue. I don't understand. Anyway, continued Jerry, because of the metal concentration, the kernels were expected to be sterile. Most of them were. But coons attacked the field and ate some and got sick. So that was one problem they had. Crows pecked at the ears and got sick. That was another. Bits of the ears were dragged by various animals a ways away. Turned out some were fertile after all. They took root and started growing over data lines. The plant couldn't tell the difference between a heavy metal being cleaned up in a waste site or a similar heavy metal in a computer underground. Michael stamped his feet. What are you talking about? Michael stared hard at him. I don't know what's across the river. I'm saying it could be anything. What? Killer corn? Jerry snorted. Of course not. But if people could rebuild ears and it escapes, what else could they have done? Crocodiles to control Asian lungfish? Killer bees to control oak borers? I know what lives here. I live with it every day. I know things are different across the river. Jerry calmed himself. You take your elephant across the river if you want to, but you'll come back and stay with me here if you're smart. Jackie was waiting for him in the afternoon shade. A vast section of the soybean field had been leveled and she looked well-fed for the first time in several days. Michael looked around. Tasty? She looked at the field. Pretty good. Her belly seemed even a little swollen. How much longer till we get to Hohenwald? Jackie shook her head. A couple of weeks, I hope. And Florida? If we go to Florida. I expect we'll get there midsummer. Michael thought for a moment. Do you know the date? It's the first day of May. May Day, Michael said slowly. That's six weeks. 
Michael looked at him with one eye. So? Could you get there faster if you weren't carrying me? It won't make any difference. I could only go faster if I don't take time to feed. But I can't afford to starve myself. Not now. How come? Never mind. You're hiding something. So what? It doesn't concern you. Who the hell do you think you are? shouted Michael, surprising them both. Jackie stepped back. For a moment, she stood, arrested, one leg raised ready in defense, three solidly on the ground. Are you going to squash me for shouting at you? Michael shook his head in disgust. I was better off with Ned. Slowly, Jackie eased her leg down. She turned and silently walked over to the pond in the middle of the soybean field. Michael watched as she pulled up water and splashed it over herself. Dear Mom, I don't think Jackie will ever like me. I guess I was fooling myself. She's an elephant. She hates me because I'm a person, and people did things to her and other elephants. Jerry wants me to stay here with him. He has a good thing here. Metropolis has a power source so he can stay warm for a long time. With everybody gone, the leftover preserved food will be good for years. There are some wild crops here, too. Ned never had it so good. Jackie doesn't need me. Most of the stuff Ralph packed was for me. I could rig a bag for her to carry around her neck for the stuff she has to have. That ought to be enough. And it's not like I'm holding stuff for her to read anymore. Whatever she found back at the zoo must have been all she wanted. She hasn't been interested in anything but going south since. When I told this to Jackie, she didn't say anything for a while. Then all she said was, suit yourself. So I guess I'll be staying in Metropolis. Love, Mike. Jerry waited at the ferry while Michael walked with Jackie back up to the soybean field. Michael decided he didn't want Jerry to know about her. It felt safer to keep everything quiet. Jackie followed his lead silently. Michael kept glancing at her as she ate, trying to see if she had any regrets he was staying here. Her elephantine face was inexpressive, but her movements were short and abrupt. Could she be angry with him for staying? Or just impatient to be on her way? When she was done, he slung the makeshift bag around her neck so she could reach it and led her back down to the dock. She stepped gingerly onto the metal floor of the ferry. There was plenty of room, and even in the strong current, it only swayed slightly. Jerry cast off without comment and angled the ferry upstream into the river. Michael felt the powerful motor bite into the current and the entire craft hummed. But he could not hear the motor itself, only the churning of the propeller. Jerry caught his expression. Quiet, isn't she? Electric motor. He pulled up the hatch. Michael saw a roundish cube with the shaft coming out connected with thick cables to a cylindrical device. That's the motor, Jerry said, pointing to the cube. That's the power storage, pointed to the cylinder. A battery? They called it a fuel coil when I bought the boat. Not sure how it works, but it holds about 40 hours of power. These days I charge it up from a little turbine I dropped off the dock. Don't need to use the boat that much. For longer trips, I can charge it from a big fuel cell I carry with me. He dropped the hatch with a clang and returned to the wheel. 
The Encanante passed the main eddy line and entered the center of the river. Jerry stepped up the motor and angled the Encanante more steeply. The ripples and twists in the current caused the boat to shift and slide a little. Not enough to make standing difficult, but enough so Michael noticed. They made him grin. Jackie looked around nervously. Then they were across the main river and nearing the far side. Jerry eased off the throttle and dropped the Encanante below a bluff jutting out into the water. Again, they crossed the strong eddy that made the ferry jump a moment. The water grew calm and Jerry brought Encanante to the dock. Michael led Jackie off the ferry and stood with her for a moment in the middle of the road. He looked east, judging the vegetation. There was plenty. The forest was thick on the other side of the road, and he could see the break in the trees signifying a field. Jackie wouldn't starve. Turning away from Jerry so he couldn't see, Michael pulled the atlas out of his jacket. Here, you walk down to Interstate 24 and take it south. Then, take Highway 45 to Benton. Once you get to Benton, hunt around until you find Highway 641. Take that to Interstate 40, east, then. We've been over this. A lot. While I wrote it down, there's a leather holder I made for you. It's tied to the belt and the directions aren't along with the map book. I drew it all out on the map so you wouldn't get lost. Thanks said Jackie shortly. Michael nodded and stuffed the atlas into the bag. You take care of yourself. Jackie watched as he walked back to the ferry. Michael felt his eyes sting. He looked back. Jackie was only a few feet away. Something shook the brush on the far side of the road. Before he fully registered what it was, he was running at it, yelling at Jackie to back away. Jerry tried to grab him, but Michael ducked under his hands. It raised its thick body high on its legs and ran toward Jackie, its mouth open and narrow as a snake's. Lizard? Crocodile? He ran past and stood, screaming between them. The thing stopped, closed its mouth, and stepped back only so long for a long tongue to slip out and back. Then it lunged forward and grabbed for Michael. Michael danced back, but it grabbed his leg and shook him off his feet. Then it raised its claws over him. Michael heard trumpeting. Jackie's leg came down on its midsection. The creature ruptured, and blood and meat spewed across the road. Its jaws opened reflexively, and Michael scrambled back. Jackie stamped on it until it was nothing but a flat, smeared ruin. She then looked at Michael. Michael smiled at her. She leaned over him and wrapped her trunk around his leg. He looked down and saw the blood and felt nauseous. This will hurt, she said. She wrapped her trunk around his leg and squeezed. For a moment, Michael couldn't see or breathe. Jerry, Jackie shouted, get over here and pick him up. Jerry ran over to them, and as he lifted Michael by the shoulders, Jackie lifted his leg. The pounding in his leg seemed to drown out everything. Back in the ferry, Michael looked around. He must have blacked out for a moment. They were now deep in the middle of the river. He felt sleepy. Don't you go away from me, Jackie said, kneeling over him. You stay here, Michael. Michael wanted to say he was sorry, but he was as light as smoke, and he drifted away. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Stephen. Stephen, thank you so much. And Jeff, what can I say? A big thank you. Look out for next week's part two 
of Jackie's Boy. That is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do stick around for next week's thrilling entailment of Jackie's Boy Part 2. Well, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and by God, I'll mention it at the end of the show as well. Don't forget, we are on a kind of big, big promotion drive to kind of get some funds into Starship Sofa. Keep it going for another year. That would be fantastic. Like I say, it's been a bit kind of shy of late, and there's been a few kind of pulled out of the monthly donations program. And that's, hey, that's life, do you know what I mean? You've all got your own kind of tunes to, to kind of play, but, you know, we've still got to keep going. So please, you know, if you're thinking about donating, that would be fantastic. Just a monthly donation would just help out so much, you know what I mean? Like I say, we've been down this road before, but we've been doing Starship Sofa free since 2006. And we could just do a little bit of funds at the moment, so that would be fantastic. From the website, you'll find all the details. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.